Hi, it's uh, Philip Lee. Greetings um, from the Prince pub just around the corner from the West Brompton Tube in the Kensington constituency of my close friend and colleague uh, Sam Gima, who's fighting here for the Lib Dems, trying to over overturn a, um, the Labour Party, actually, in this constituency. If you could see me now, you'd, you'd, you'd be giggling, because I'm, I'm sort of sitting here in a dark pub with lights with a pair of sunglasses on. I unfortunately have, and I'm sure this will be the photograph on the podcast this week, but you will see that I'm looking rather daft, and it's because I can't wear my contact lenses at the moment. And I feel like I, I look a bit like John Lennon, I think, sort of circa paperback writer, 1966. Um, now, last week I was flying solo. This week, my hope and expectation is I'm not. Sam is on is en route from a campaigning event. Um, we have a, a guest here this week who's a fellow Liberal Democrat. Uh, up until last week, the Member of Parliament for Twickenham, prior to that Cabinet Minister for Innovation, Business and Skills between 2010 and 2015. And sadly, he's stepping down as a Member of Parliament after 22 years in the House of Commons. It's Sir Vince Cable. Hello, Vince. Hi. Welcome to the podcast. Hello. So what do you think? How do you see politics at the moment? Well, the election has somehow hasn't quite got going yet. We've got all kind of cross-currents. Um, I mean, I've been doing a bit of door-knocking and uh, several adoption meetings with my colleagues. I mean, it's... Um, the, the, from the tourist point of view, they're, they're, they're running two big themes. I mean, one is that this is a Brexit election, which is a theme in the north of England. And in the south, it's, um, you know, it's all about stopping Jeremy Corbyn and not mentioning Brexit. Somehow or other, that contradiction is going to be exposed at some point. But the mood I get from the Lib Dems I'm talking to is very optimistic. I've been at adoption meetings a few days ago in Romsey, for example, which is on the outer uh, fringe of our range of possibilities, but they're very much up for it and getting very good feedback. And, and how does it feel not being a candidate? I mean, I mean, how many general elections have you done? I mean, well, I've done ten. I've won five, lost five. So I, I know, I know <laughs> the, good, the, the good bits and the bad bits. And it's... Um, well, it's something of a relief, actually. I mean, I, I, I enjoy politics. I like being part of the campaigning. I like public meetings, taking questions, um, dealing with a lively audience. But at the end of the day, you know, my life, my job isn't on the line. And that's... Um, it does, it does uh, that mean that you feel free to express yourself a bit more because you're not sort of a candidate? Do you feel Yes, I mean, I have to be careful. You know, if the leader of the Liberal Democrats started... Um, saying uncomfortable things for the party, I wouldn't be forgiven. I mean, you know, I, I, I do, you know, I'm, I'm very much signed up with the, the party line with a few yeah. quibbles. Uh, and uh, equally, I don't want to be a backseat driver telling my successor and her colleagues yeah. what to do. So I'm there as a fully committed supporter, but I'll express my support in my own way. I mean, this is arguably one of the most important elections, I'd suggest, since the war. I mean... Were you tempted to run? Did you think, do you know what, I'll stick around for this one last push? Well, I was tempted, but it means signing up for five years, and I, um, I, I felt that was a push too far, actually. Yeah. Mm. Now, I'm a relatively recent recruit to the Lib Dems. I mean, the party took a real beating in 2015 and 2017, um, with people still using the coalition and austerity as sticks to beat the Liberal Democrats with. That seems to have vanished now. Why do you think that is? 
Well, I, I don't buy the premise of your question, really. I mean, I don't think the reason we did so badly in 2015, certainly in 17, was primarily because of the coalition. I mean, we would have lost seats, for sure. Um, most of the polls at the beginning of the 2015 election had us going down from the mid-50s to the mid-30s. But the reason we lost was that the Tories ran this... Uh, theme, you know, vote Lib Dem and you get Miliband and the SNP. Uh, it really worked that time. Yeah, I, they I tapped into English nationalism. I hope people are a bit smarter this time around, but they're yeah. using the same technique again. Yeah. No, I mean, I, I, I certainly, when I uh, campaigned in 2015, I was really struck by how the Conservative line on um, Scottish nationalists being in power, governing England really resonated on the doorsteps in particularly in Bracknell town itself and there were people who on our canvas sheets had been lifelong socialists who were saying they were going to vote for me because they didn't want quote unquote that Scottish woman anywhere near government. Um, well there's a very good counter to it which is that if we get Brexit this will almost certainly hasten the breakup of the UK but it's a slightly more subtle argument than just uh, appealing to people's visceral dislikes of Glasgow accents. Yeah, no, I mean, I was surprised at the effectiveness of that line. You, know, you can sort of understand it perhaps closer to Scotland, but in Bracknell, really? I mean, it's, it seemed it didn't seem right. And, uh, I mean, in the end, it actually um, it turned around and metaphorically bit the Cameron team on the backside because the same English nationalism they tapped into also drove the Brexit vote, I would suggest, a year later in 2016. Well, it did, yeah. I mean, the, I, th I think what's different and more difficult this time is that, you know, Miliband was an old-fashioned socialist in the Brown tradition, but Corbyn is something else. And there is a real terror, almost, of Corbyn uh, amongst a lot of... Uh, Tory voters, even people who are otherwise liberal-minded, remain-minded. And the big challenge of this election is going to be to persuade those people that this is a Brexit election and how they vote will be absolutely critical to the future of the country and not allow themselves to be panicked by scare stories about Corbyn coming in as Prime uh, Minister and making Britain like Venezuela. I mean, it's not going to happen. I noticed this morning that um, John Curtis, famous sophologist, has come out and said that the chances of a Corbyn majority are next to, well, nothing. There's no chance well, of indeed, it. indeed, that's right. Which I think, in a way, probably nullifies that. That's the the, the so the, the line that the Tories are using about you've got to vote for us because otherwise you'll get Corbyn. Yeah, well, Essentially what John yeah, Curtis yeah. was saying mm. was, no, you're not. There's no situation in which Corbyn can win. Well, if only people listen to John Curtis. Uh, but, the, of course, the, the argument we have to get across is that by de denying uh, Johnson the majority... Uh, that is the route to getting a referendum and hopefully to stopping Brexit altogether. And, and allow me to be challenging here, going back to your comments about why the Lib Dems suffered so much in 2015 vis-a-vis -vis being part of the coalition. What do you say to the criticism that the, the Brexit vote was a reaction to what the coalition did? Well, I, my, my reaction is that whoever was in power, had it been the Lib Dems in coalition with the Tories or a return to Gordon Brown and Alistair Darling, they'd have been doing pretty much the same thing. I mean, the truth was that the financial crisis took a terrible bite out of the British economy. It was the worst crisis we'd had for 
decades uh, and it caused great losses in the government budget and in the economy. Somebody had to sort out the mess, uh, get the finances into some semblance of order, otherwise we'd have had a panic um, uh, run against the UK. People have a limited appetite to buy British government bonds. And um, we had to do difficult things. I mean, I, there are some things I would have done differently, but uh, whoever Such was in... As, well, I would have done a bit more government borrowing, uh, low interest rates kind of thing we're now talking about more. I would have had a bit more tax and a bit less cut in public spending. But however it was there, there were going to be painful things. And uh, what was so extraordinary is the way the Labour Party has been able to somehow airbrush out of history... Uh, the biggest financial crisis we've had for a century. Mm. I mean, I looking at the. I mean, we'll come on to talk about the election as it. You know what's going on in the campaign shortly, but at the moment, it has a feel of a hung parliament looming on the other side. Um, do you think, reflecting back on your time when you were coming in, in sort of that? that period after sort of the Clegg bounce, that heady period for the Lib Dems, and then going into some negotiations with both Conservative and Labour, are, are there things that you would have done differently and, and, and have you fed that into the system in terms of any future negotiations that might take place between political parties? Well, there is a big difference. I mean, in 2010, you know, whatever people's reservations about Gordon and uh, David Cameron... I mean, they were both reasonable people. I mean, they were sensible, rational, um, and within their own traditions, moderate, uh, and you could do business with them. I, I would personally have felt more comfortable with Gordon Brown, actually, but the numbers weren't there, and we had to work with the Conservatives, and I don't regret that. And Cameron, for all his flaws and his terrible subsequent misjudgment over Brexit was somebody we could do business with. But Corbyn and uh, Boris Johnson are in a completely different category there. Um, that's, my, that's what I was sort of getting into, because yeah. I'm, I'm getting this on the doorsteps in Wokingham, that we're obviously out trying to campaign for a majority government, and, and we should be. That's what all political parties should seek to get at 326 members of parliament. But what you get on the doorstep is, well, if you don't get that, if you don't achieve that, how are you going to go about negotiating <laughs> this? And what, what are your red lines on these issues? And who do you think you might work with more? And I think in my response to that is it's actually quite difficult for us because of what you've just said, which is sort of the extreme of Johnson and the extreme of Corbyn. How do you facilitate government? How do you get to a Well, we're not in the business of trying to put Corbyn or Boris Johnson into government. I mean, our agenda is very specific, which is to do with the Brexit issue. And the, the, the aim of having a hung parliament is to create a situation where Johnson cannot push ahead with the withdrawal agreement and is forced, because there is no other alternative, to go back to the country uh, with a referendum vote. Actually, I this may be a slightly heretical thought, but actually I think Johnson would be privately quite pleased to get this off his plate. I, mean, well, if, I, if, I totally agree with you. Well, maybe not, but... If, I, if, know, I agree, I, I, I agree yeah. with you that I think he... You know, we all know that for him, this was just about a vehicle of trying to appeal yeah. to the Conservative membership base. Mm. I don't think he believes in it at all. Well, no, I, I don't think he believes in it. And if, if it, Parliament was able, through 
um, a Remainer majority to impose a referendum, which is the point we were getting to in the last parliament, and I think we will if there's another hung parliament, then it takes the responsibility off him. You go back to the public, you resolve the issue. There is, um, at worst, I think, a 50-50 chance we finish up staying in the European Union. A lot of the problems... Uh, disappear um, and then almost certainly there would have to be another election um, extraordinary things might happen I mean the, the Labour Party is very fragile uh, I think we could well see another rupture on a bigger scale than the one we've already had we could be talking about realignments traditional party loyalties meaning much less in future Well, Sam has just arrived at the Prince Hotfoot from campaigning in Kensington. Sam, how's it going? It's going very well. Um, there is uh, clearly a strong Liberal uh, Democrat vote in the constituency, which is not surprising given that we got 36% of the vote in the European elections. The Brexit Party got 17% of the vote. And the Tories and Labour got about 12 13% each. So there's a strong vote and um, people are really coming to us, but we've got to convince them that voting Liberal Democrat will not let either the Conservatives or Corbyn in, um, which is uh, the business that we are in. And, I mean, one of the strongest arguments this week was actually, for us, was made by Nigel Farage, who said the reason why he had decided to stand in some seats or stand down in some seats was because he was trying to stop the advance of the Liberal Democrats and that's been very helpful locally when Labour waverers, for example, have said, if we vote for you, are we letting the Tories in? To make it very clear to them that actually we are the only ones who can win votes and seats of the Tories. So if you want to stop the Tories, you've got to vote Liberal Democrat. Um, there are a lot of soft Tories also here um, who are very concerned about Jeremy Corbyn. So what Joe Swinton has been saying about not putting Jeremy Corbyn into Downing Street is exactly the right message for Kensington. And before I came here, you know, a major Conservative Party uh, a former minister, he'd been an MP for 23 years, and um, just came out to support my campaign. We'll be making it official um, in, a, in a couple of days' time. But again, it's, it's the soft Tories who now feel that the Conservative Party is not their home. Now, you, Philip, you and I had, to have, had this discussion about a year ago, but I think what's happened this week and the kind of the agreement with Farage for a lot of them has kind of strengthened their view that this Conservative Party is going in one direction and not turning back anytime soon. I don't have any sort of senior Tories to unveil like you. I said, but it's been quite interesting to receive texts from former senior Tories saying, best of luck in beating Redwood. <laughs> um, and so I, I you know, it, it, things are changing. I think that's uh, what I, the impression I get. Well, talking about things changing, I think most of my donations have come from Conservatives giving me their contacts in Kensington who will donate to my campaign. And not all of them want to be public, of course, but I think things are changing and the Conservative Party's changed and 
those who are on the One Nation side of the party feel they no longer belong. I think that's one of the ways in which this election differs. I mean, we're no longer having to go around with a a cat begging for money and being the impoverished third party. I mean, we're doing quite well for money. The, the, the challenge is actually getting the level of exposure because um, there's tendency through the media um, based on historic performance, to be fair to them, uh, not treating us as equals. And, of course, that feeds into the kind of narrative of the two main parties that they're the only people you have to choose between. So, I mean, I th- what I thought was good about this week was seeing Joe Swinson getting good publicity, that picture on the front page of all the newspapers in the boxing gloves. I don't know what the story was, but it was a good picture, and that's the kind of thing, sadly, which swings elections. Uh, yes, you, you need exposure, and um, I absolutely agree with you about the the nature of the funding situation, which is critical to winning elections, that... You know, if you are following the money, then mm. the Liberal Democrats are a serious force to be Absolutely. contended with. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I don't think the media has caught up with that fact yet. Yeah, and, and our sources of support are very widely dispersed. I mean, unlike the Labour Party, which has got one big cheque from the Unite Union to keep it going, uh, you know, we're being supported by a lot of um, ordinary people, plus business large and small. It's a pretty Catholic... Um, constituency of support. So, well, well, let's focus on the election as of uh, tea time on Thursday. So, the Conservatives and Labour are in an arms race on who can promise the biggest spend. Boris Johnson's photo opportunities around the Yorkshire floods left him with more please leave my town moments. And Tom Watson's decision to quit the Labour Party and politics altogether has rocked what was left of moderate Labour. Vince, did you ever think you'd see the day that the Conservatives were trying to look like they'd, they would outspend Labour? No, I, I, I didn't. I mean, there are literally hundreds of millions, uh, billions, sorry, I'm in the wrong denomination here. Um, I, I know Labour are up to trillions, but the Tories are trying to match them. Um, it'll be, it's a race to the first quadrillion, I think, which is going on here. I'm not sure how many people will be impressed by it. Because, as you rightly say, um, the economy is stagnant. The budget is in is is in difficulties, partly because of Brexit, uh, and the scope for spending just isn't there. I mean, the real problem here is that, of course, there is scope for doing a bit more capital spending and borrowing to build, but there isn't a great deal of scope for the improved services, better public sector pay, more nurses, doctors, all those things that people want. Unless you're willing to raise taxes, and uh, you know our party uh, has been willing to say openly, people have to pay a penny in the pound in income tax. We're not just relying on uh, a handful of billionaires to pay the taxes. I mean, you're right about it. It's historically a cheap time to borrow, and therefore, if you were going to invest in infrastructure, this was the time to do it. I had an interesting exchange with um, as a nurse, a former nurse, in in uh, it was out in West Berkshire late last night, and she understood that it wasn't just about money improving the National Health Service. It was also about the way in which you spend that money with the National Health Service. So, for example... 
um, chronic healthcare is about 80% of the budget. Um, today's story about A&E, it's important, but realistically, most of the money is spent in chronic care and increasingly so with an ageing society. So we were having a discussion about the need to uh, change the infrastructure of, of, of hospitals, so have more community hospitals, but perhaps fewer acute hospitals in more accessible locations. Now, this is why when I, I remember Matt Hancock made an announcement to the chamber recently and I asked him what was the evidence for all of this money you were spending on various hospitals across the country because there is a sense that we continue to spend money on hospitals that actually aren't fit for purpose in the 21st century to deliver healthcare. So it's easy, my point being is, is it's easy to spend money wrongly. Mm. Um, actually, what we need to do is take a, a, a broader view about how healthcare is provided in the 21st century, how best provided. And that's why I like the Lib Dem policy around a commission on health and social care funding and the long-term future of it, because mm. get the experts in the room and we might find that how we spend the money that we need to spend on healthcare would be different. But um, sort of in terms of the politics of this, one thing that I don't understand, and Vince, you may be able to sort of illuminate us on this, is how the Conservatives can simultaneously accuse Labour of embarking on a spending spree, while at the same time saying they're going to spend more. I mean, politically, how does that work? How? Yes, it it is cynical. I mean, there is. I mean, I think there is out there a yearning for better times, including better services, and. Uh, you know, unfortunately, the Labour Party have at least won that part of the argument of believing that there are, um, you know, fruit on the magic money tree. And the Conservatives, instead of being more sensible and just being realistic with people, which has been their traditional forte before they became a populist party, um, should be making that case. And it's been left to the Lib Dems to argue for uh, a degree of economic rationality. So, so we've gone from sort of fantasy Brexit policies to fantasy domestic policies. Um, and, and on the domestic front, for example, tuition fees. Labour is promising free tuition fees again. Um, that can't be done. And um, all these promises that are being made. And at some point, surely um, the turkeys are going to come home to roost. Yeah, I, I don't want to go on about tuition fees. It's a story of a decade ago, and it didn't rebound very well on the Lib Dems. But the idea that you can somehow make tuition free, um, I, I mean, what it involves in practice is a large subsidy to high-earning graduates, which is a very strange educational priority to have when schools are desperately short of money. Uh, it, and I think it's actually lost its political appeal. I spend a lot of time in the universities. The students understand the system. They know it's a, a form of graduate tax and they, they're realistic about it and many of them actually support it. So I think Corbyn's passed his sell-by date on this issue. Yeah, I agree with that. Yeah. But I mean, Corbyn's passed his sell-by date, but he's promising $400 billion on climate change and social deprivation. Infrastructure, regional development, a green transformation... I mean, when something is that big, is it possible for voters to even get their heads around it? No, and I don't think that's the intention. Um, actually, buried away in McDonald's um, pronouncements on this subject is quite an interesting commitment. They, are, they have signed up to Gordon Brown's Golden Rule, which actually means that if they, in the unlikely event they got into office, they wouldn't be able to do any of this at all. Um, and he would find himself in exactly the same position that Gordon Brown 
found himself in 1997 having to administer cuts. Uh, and I think maybe we, you know, we should be encouraging Labour supporters to look at the small print uh, because their leader, certainly their economic spokesman, is a lot more uh, cunning than their leader. Mm. <laughs> right. So, so you, you you think that they are making all these promises, but they have no intention. They, they have no intention. Well, a, a, they don't expect to be in office seriously. And B, if they ever were, they know they could uh, go back on what they've committed themselves to. Mm. Right, that's that's interesting. So I, I think basically, to which MacDonald is driving this, sees himself as a kind of Spiras, you know, from the, the Greek model. <laughs> uh, that great model, of, that great model of success. Anyway, let's move on to a more cheerful subject. Right. Well, how do we summarise the first couple of weeks of campaigning then? This is a stage of the election when banana skins appear. Um, is that the case with Johnson and his floor mopping photo shoots? Um, oh, the chips have arrived. The, the chips, the chips but, no, arrived. but no nuts this week. <laughs> no, no, nobby's there's nuts. No, no, there's no nobby's nuts in this pub. It's not. It's not on. It's, um, it's yeah. It's a. It's a non-nuts pub. Um, but but the, the question we're asking is sort of how do we summarise the first couple of weeks? At, at one level, it seems to me that. The Conservatives had a shocker to start with. You know, Jacob Rees-Mogg, his comments on our grand film, Candy, uh, you know, Alan Kearns, Cabinet Minister, having to uh, resign. And I think in on both the Labour and Tory side, they've had to stand down a few candidates. But all seems not to really be in the price. You know, the Tory poll rating seems to be defined political gravity. Well, I, th- I think what's, what's the Tories have got two lines basically, and all, all the rest is just noise in the background. One, one of them is we'll get Brexit done. We have to explode the myth of that statement because it's not going to get it done. <coughs> we just return to another year of uncertainty as we approach the end of the transition and just get that message over and over and over again. And the second line is this um, vote for. Uh, us and you finish up with Corbyn and the SNP and it is a myth but we've got to demolish it because that's proving quite powerful in uh, Tory leaning areas. What I was quite struck by today again another exchange on the doorsteps and did you know this is the first time I've done every election as an activist or as a candidate since 1992 Vince. I have never been on the doorsteps with people who are retired, elderly people expressing the view that they're going to change their vote. Because invariably people who are in the, in the who are retired, they've always voted a certain way, they remain of that persuasion, be they Labour, be they Conservative, be they Liberal. And this morning I was out in Wokingham and there were uh, elderly people in their 70s and 80s, indeed my, the oldest, um, the oldest uh, person I've ever canvassed actually, she was 101 this morning, she answered the door, and they're changing their vote. And one of them said something very interesting. She said, that Boris Johnson, I voted Conservative all my life, I just don't like him, he doesn't care. Look what he was like when he went up to those flood flood areas this week. I'm not sure that Boris Johnson is the campaigning winner that the Tories think he is. What do you you think, Vince? Well, Theresa May was... uh a disaster from a different point of view. She was sort of shy and diffident, but basically a decent woman, whereas he's adopting the opposite approach. But as you say, people can see the guy's a rogue. And um, 
you know, when they see... I mean, Corbyn isn't attractive either, but I think once people begin to see that they've been offered two very unattractive alternatives, then they will turn to us in big numbers, I think. I think think you're, you're absolutely right about the Tory attempt to paint everything that is non-Tory as chaos and I think Philip and I in a former life have made those arguments right it's it's like page one of Tory campaign manual is conservatives are competent every, everyone else is chaos yeah, tax um, <laughs> that's page two of the conservative party campaigning manual but, um, but what's interesting though is and the reality is since 2010 you know, we've We've had coalitions of some sort, right? You had the coalition with the Liberal Democrats in 2010. In 2015, the Conservatives won a narrow majority and then indulged themselves with a referendum and lost that majority and then went into a confidence and supply with DUP. And even when the Conservative Party has had a majority recently, it's been in coalition with one faction of the Conservative Party. So this whole idea that somehow coalitions bad and only a John, a whopping Johnson majority will save the country is something that we've got to debunk because yeah. it's clearly um, not the case obviously I think what we, we don't want and what will be bad for the country is either Johnson or Jeremy Corbyn having a majority and in Downing Street but there's a real challenge um, I'm not sure we're quite meeting it yet which is it to explain that if we do get a Remainer majority in, in the hung parliament, this isn't a prelude to a coalition involving us and the Scottish Nationalists and Labour. We're quite clear that won't happen. We then, I think we do have to build up a clearer narrative than we currently have about exactly what then happens and how we get from that remain a majority in Parliament to getting the referendum without putting Corbyn into 10 Downing Street. I mean, we, in the last Parliament, we had a route map to doing this through a government of national unity, and there were people on hand like Ken Clark who would have um, helped us with that. But we've got to refresh that argument, explain how it would work. Uh, that in delivering people from Brexit, we're not serving them up to something that they regard as equally unpalatable or worse. I, I think that's, 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 that's an argument that needs to be made very clearly in the second half of the campaign because pe- people are asking, you know, how are you actually going to um, stop Brexit? But um, before we sort of end up sort of um, strategizing about the Liberal Democrats and kind of where next um, on, the, on this podcast i'm particularly interested in nigel farage's um promises to step aside from tory seats um is that really the massive gain for the conservatives that the brexit press tells us it is i didn't ever ever have an expectation that the brexit party were going to run against john redwood i mean john redwood is the poster boy of no deal brexit i mean he is the grandfather of this complete sorry mess and um, so for me, I've always worked on the basis that that would be the case. So for Nigel Farage to come out and basically say and anoint the Conservative Party as the Brexit Party actually made it quite clearer for me on the ground. I could say to Tory Remainers as, um, and say, look, if you vote locally as a Conservative, you're voting for a Brexit. And if you look at the realities 
of how they're going to negotiate over the next over the coming months, there is a strong chance of a no deal Brexit uh, emanating from this process. And so Nigel Farage, I think, is is helped people like me um, in seats like mine because he's made it quite clear what you and I, Sam, have always known, that the Tory party was embracing Brexit wholeheartedly. Um, now it's quite clear because Nigel Farage is supporting the Tory party. And that's so much clearer than in 2017 because I remember the Lib Dems used to put around these leaflets showing Theresa May as a kind of sub-Farage character and it really wasn't <laughs> plausible. I mean... Um, but um, with, with Johnson having sound this pact with the devil, it is all too plausible. And, and it is a pact. I know it's, it's been presented to the public as some kind of unilateral act by Nigel Farage for the good of the Brexit cause, but it is really a pact, isn't it? And um, what this confirms is the defining ideology of the Conservative Party now is hard Brexit. They can't move away from that position. And um, if you back the Tories, you're back in hard Brexit or no deal via the back door. There's, um, mm-hmm. I think for me, that, and that makes it much clearer, Vince, as you're saying, to say that on a doorstep now, because even a week ago, if you said that to people, you know, you had to explain why there could be a cliff edge in December 2020 and Johnson might go for no deal, etc. And people were like, well, he's got a deal, hasn't he? Isn't the deal supposed to stop no deal? But I think now... It's clear that the soul, is a way I will put it, of the Conservative Party is owned by Nigel Farage. He's got that psychological grip now. And between him and Aaron Banks, they haven't given up for nothing. Right? They've got something in return, and which is they see it as a reverse takeover of the Tory party. Mm. Yes, and, and, and Banks is uh, a little cruder, um, or more direct, and he's... Uh, Cutting out the intermediate stage, which Farage is indulging in. Then looking at the impact on the Labour Party then, if the Brexit Party won't step aside in Labour seats that the Tories can win, has he really helped them? Or is he still holding a gun to the Tory Party's heads? It's not very clear what Farage is trying to do there. No, it, it is ambiguous, which of course is why the Tories are still very cross with him. Um, I mean, the, the, the feedback I've had from Labour MPs, and I'm on a, on a weekly panel with Gloria Del Piero and, a, um, and, and interact with them quite a bit, is that uh, they, a lot of their working-class voters are never going to vote Tory, ever. Uh, but they would, have, um, they would vote for the, uh, the Brexit party and probably will do. So by keeping them in play... You know, he's preventing this switch which he's trying to achieve in, in the kind of working-class heartlands at the Midlands and the North. Yeah, well, well, I mean, we spend a lot of time... That's, that's all very, very interesting. And we spend a lot of time, obviously, talking about the right, you know, the, what's happened to the One Nation Conservatives, what's happened to the Conservative Party, what is the impact of uh, Farage on the Conservative Party. But you've got a similar... I mean, there's something else happening on the other side of the political spectrum, which is on the Labour Party. And I think we should try and look at it through the lens of our Tom Watson and what his resignation means and where does it leave Labour moderates? Because I understand he was the one who stopped the stampede uh, from the Labour Party to change UK and um, promising that there will be a better tomorrow if people sort of came under his wing. And now he's left. So where does that leave those Labour moderates? 
Well, we don't really know what his motives were. He says they were private, and they may be, but there may be something more involved. I, th- I think it was actually more developed than you, you say. I mean, he was quite open about the fact that if he, the moderates in the Labour Party couldn't get rid of Corbyn um, within the next year or so, they would break away and form their own group of 70-odd MPs, um, working in alliance with the Lib Dems, as it happened. I think that was very much part of the story. Um, now, whether he, he pursues that outside Parliament rather than inside it, I don't know. I mean, I, I do like the guy and rate him. Um, but I think the dynamic that he was planning to exploit is still there. And after the next election, we could well see that fissure in the Labour Party reopening. I mean, th- that's an interesting point, and I'd I just like us to explore it for a second. So you've got Labour moderates who get, say, they get elected into the next parliament. Let's assume that Corbyn refuses to resign, even if he loses the election. What do those moderates then do? You know, do they break away to work with the Liberal Democrats, or do they still... Because by this point, they've been re-elected. They survived the trigger ballots. Kind of what do they do with their time in that new parliament? Well, the paradox is that I think in the Labour Party that will emerge from the election, you'll have more brave and committed Remainers, and you'll have more hardline momentum people as well. <laughs> so the, the scope for a, a punch-up is um, building. I think potentially a challenge for us as, as in the sort of centre ground of, of, of British politics is that I wonder whether there's going to be something, um, a new party that comes out of that dynamic on the Labour side and whether this is <clears throat> a prelude to it is John Watson stepping aside. Maybe he's stepping aside for personal reasons but probably also thinks I'll come back in a few years' time when everything has settled down and we need... And he sees it as a new sort of centre-left or centre political force in British politics. Mm. Well, I hope that happens. I'm, um, it will be the pro- product... I, I've worked very hard on that project for the last couple of years, and it's beginning to happen, and you two are evidence of it. Um, but we've got a lot more to do, and I look forward to seeing it. OK. Well, thank you very much, Vince. Before you disappear, I know you've got somewhere to go off. What do you do at the weekends to sort of get away from politics? What's your... Because well, I've read today of Rod Stewart, obviously likes, likes model railways, which no-one knew. Um, what do you like to do, Vince? Well, I have a dancing class on Friday afternoon um, every week. I kept going even when I was in the Cabinet, um, and I'm doubling my classes now and preparing for a tournament. OK. So well, I'm thinking of taking dancing lessons. I actually picked up a leaflet from a dance um, sort of dance club around the corner from where I live in Westminster because I was thinking of doing something romantic with my wife and learning how to dance together. Um, but I haven't got to it. It's this, it's, it's this general election campaign is stopping me from getting my dancing shoes on like you, Vince. Canvassing for both of us, uh, Philip, isn't it? But um, I think an interesting story is um, my wife said to my five-year-old, or my... F- you know, um, you know, Daddy's up for election, and he asked her, "So what happens if he doesn't win?" And she said, "Well, you have to do something else." <laughs> and he said, um, "What does that mean for the Christmas party?" By which he meant the the House of Commons Christmas party, which he loves. And she said, 
we can't go. At which point he said, well, I would like to go door knocking. <laughs> so I've, I've, got one, one, I've got one door knocker uh, for the weekend who wants to secure the House of Commons Christmas party uh, this year. I haven't got rugby this weekend, Sam. Um, there's a bit of football this evening, the England-Montenegro game, which I'm hoping to squeeze in. Um, next week... Hopefully, Sam, we're currently in Kensington. You will come to Wokingham um, constituency and uh, we'll be sorting out a guest for then. I've got some ideas of some local people who might come on. And, uh, and Vince is just saying goodbye. Bye, Vince. You're looking very dapper in your hat. It's bye-bye. Um, so hopefully we'll have uh, one or two guests on next week. Yes, looking very much uh, looking forward to um, next week and seeing what else happens on the campaign trail. Um, in the in in the in the week ahead. Thanks for listening. Um, we'll both be back next week. Don't forget to subscribe to On the House on your favourite podcast app. Thanks again to Vince Cable for coming in, and it's it's, it's good for goodbye for me, Philip Lee. Goodbye from me, Sam Gman. We'll see you next time.